Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Welcome to Gospel Community Church. If you're a guest or you've been coming for a while, we want you to know our whole aim and goal here is to make Jesus the hero. And there's a lot of different ways we do that here uh, through the worship service, uh, whether it's singing praises to God, looking at what his word has to say for us and reflecting back on the gospel and what Jesus has done for us and purchasing our salvation. From the greeters who demonstrate hospitality and uh, BC, uh, before COVID, uh, setting out food and different stuff for people like being gracious or uh, what's what's the word for like hospitable. There we go. Thank you guys. Hopefully you guys don't have to help me too much with my sermon today. So, uh, but in, in different ways, we're trying to be hospitable and loving to people, demonstrating what Jesus did for us in the ultimate act of love and dying on the cross for our sake. So we try to emulate everything that Jesus did for us. We're lifting him up, making us not any one person here at Gospel Community Church, but all about Jesus Christ. And we hope that comes through even in the message today. And uh, if I didn't say so before, my name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at Gospel Community Church. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you. And if you have any questions after the sermon, feel free to come up and ask them. I'd love to talk with you and meet with you. We just finished the book of, or the letter, rather, of 1 Corinthians. And we've been taking a little bit of a break before we move into the next book and looking at the values of Gospel Community Church. And today's value that we're going to be looking at is community. It's one of the the values of Gospel Community Church. And before I, I dive into that, considering community and thinking about that, the membership, the family membership was mentioned again. And I just wanted to provide a little clarification because some people have been asking, as we we roll out the family membership thing, when you hear people say they filled out applications or stuff like that, uh, those are more of a test run. We're just testing the system to make sure because there's like a website it goes to. And so we haven't, if if you're like, how do I do this? Or how how come I got an email yet? We're just kind of doing the test phase right now, making sure everything is smooth and then trying to figure out how we're going to schedule the classes so people can come and partake and be a part of the family. So don't feel left out if you haven't gotten like an email for how to sign up for membership. We're still just doing a little bit of a test run, okay? Um, So have patience with us in that. But on this value of community and all the values we've talked about so far, I want to be clear in saying this. I hope nobody looks at Gospel Community Church or has been coming for a while and sees nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, it's true, we are. Uh, most people are. We're always hiding different things or we're putting on a false sense of self to other people. But the values at Gospel Community Church, these are values that we want to emulate, not necessarily that we think we're nailing and we're just killing community. But we think these are biblical values that we want to uh, replicate and emulate. And I'll get into a little bit of that more in here in a second. But we're going to look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 6. So if you have a Bible, you can open up there and follow along. And this is great. We're looking at community. We're looking at building one another up. The kids' ministry is doing something very similar, and we try to stay on track with them. And for the parents who have their kids go back there, we want you to know that we, we want our church to be somewhat integrated, where what the kids learning back there are similar to what the adults are here learning in the worship service. And they're looking at encouragement and building one another up. And so it, it flows along perfectly with community. So parents, it's a great thing to talk with your kids about later on today. And if, you, if you're looking, if you're a note taker, and you're looking for a way to kind of get a summation of the sermon, I've narrowed it down to one sentence, and it's this. Community is a gift from God for the fulfillment of our purpose and the strength of the church. 
Community is a gift from God for the fulfillment of our purpose and the strength of the church. We'll read Ephesians 4, 11 through 6, and then we'll dive in. Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave the apostles God. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or shepherd teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we get to come together, look at your word, worship you, sing to you in songs of praise. I pray that as we look at this value of community, you would help give us a desire for community, uh, that you would grow us in this, that you would grow us in what it looks like to live as a true community, looking to Jesus as our example. Thank you for reconciling us as a people, uh, saving people, bringing them into your community, your family, God. We thank you, God. We love you. Amen. So before we talk about community and dive into the passage, I wanted to do something really quick. When we were going through the book of 1 Corinthians, something that we did many, many times is we reflected on the culture in Corinth because it, it kind of helped us gain a little bit more insight into what exactly Paul was talking about and what was going on. Cultures have a big influence on what we do, what we say, what we think and believe, how we act in a society. And believe it or not, we have a culture here in the West, but even more specifically, we have a culture here at Gospel Community Church. And by way of example, let's go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room, my tie. If anybody else has noticed, I, I wore this specifically for this sermon. Here at Gospel Community Church, we typically don't wear ties, the, the people in the service, nor whoever's speaking or preaching at the time, because our, our, our worship culture is a little bit more casual. We have a casual approach to God that, you know, it's rooted in some theology, sure, that we can come to God. We don't have to put on any kind of facade, and so we, we, we don't dress up or wear a three-piece suit. In other parts of the world, that's a big deal. You wear your Sunday best. You wear a three-piece suit. You wear black shoes and a black belt. You do not wear brown shoes, you know, or else the grace of God just isn't in you, and, and it's different. Um, so everybody can calm down. It's just a clip-on. I'll go ahead and take that off. No, it bothered people. I actually talked to some people before the service, and a couple people did mention it. Uh, and I thank you for that. You kind of helped prove my point. We have a culture here at Gospel Community Church. But in America, we have a culture that makes community really difficult. And there's a couple big values in American culture. When I talk about community, there's a value conflict, a real big value conflict. And there's two, there's a lot of different values in American society and culture. But the two big ones are change and individualism. We change our clothes, our addresses, and our appliances faster than anywhere else in the world. It, it, it's crazy how often we change these things. When I was a kid, I remember in high school, if you wore the same pair of clothes two days in a row, you would get made fun of. Is that not true? Somebody has said something before about seeing me wear the same shirt while serving just in the church. They've said, I think I've seen you wear that church recently, or that shirt recently. 
It's weird in American culture. It's not acceptable. However, if you ask like an experienced missionary, Christian missionary that's gone to Africa multiple times and they were preparing for a trip, take a guess at how many shirts you think they'd pack for that trip. If they're going to be there for like a month, how many shirts do you think they'd bring with them? Anybody have a guess? One. They'd pack one shirt. Maybe one or two if they're going to be there for a month. But that's normal in their society is to wear the same thing day after day after day. But on the address thing, um, let me ask this too. Just by a show of hands, raise your hand if you still live in the city with which you were born and raised in. Raise your hand. If you still live in the city you were born and raised in, raise your hand. Look at that. For the, everybody at home, um, what, what would everybody say? That's maybe 5%, 10% of the people in here? Is that, is that agreeable? Okay, I just want them to know I'm not lying and making this stuff up to prove a point. Uh, myself included, I grew up in Vegas. I was born and raised in Vegas, moved to Reno, and then we moved again to, to Oregon. And it's not a bad thing to move. It's not, it's not bad. Uh, it's just that is radically different from like 99% of the world. For those that own a home, I'm assuming that your home is less than 50 years old. And that's radically different from the rest of the world. There are people in Germany have been living in the same home for the last 400 years. It's been a family home they've held on to forever. And when we move so much, that makes community very difficult to build. And it's just, it's just a value conflict that makes community difficult. Rick's talked about community before, and I forgot where he read it, but he said, there was one author that said it takes about eight years to build a community. And Gospel Community Church is five years old. This is relatively new church plant. And building community is hard in such a young church but also in a, in a Western church where people are constantly moving. Even Eugene itself is a very transient town. It's a college town. There's people coming and going all the time. So that's one big cultural conflict that makes it hard to establish community. But the other big one is individualism. And if you, if you guys have that slide, you can throw it up. I don't have the reference for this. I, I was thinking I really, I really should have brought the reference. But there is a, um, th this is a national scale that they, they, I don't know how they do this and put this together, but they, they give different cultures or different parts of the world like a, like a score, like an index score for the, how much they value certain uh, traits or, or values. And it may be very hard to see, but up at the top, at a 91 in the individual score, is United States. We are the absolute highest on the individual rating score. And this makes sense if you think about the last 400 years of our history. What kind of person does it take to come to America. Think about everything you're leaving behind. You're leaving your community, you're leaving your culture, you're leaving your family. And over time, sure, sure, there were some people that traveled to America as a community in the early you know, founding of, the, of this nation. However, over the last 400 years, many people have been coming here as individuals. They've been leaving their culture, their family, their community, everything to come here. And over time, that creates a very individualistic society, and so we think this way. And then you have Oregon. Think about the Oregon Trail and everybody moving out west. Here in Oregon, we have the individual of the individualist. We are like the most individual society in all of human history, in all of the world. And so when I, when I speak on community now, this is a big, and it's going to be hard for us to just embrace it. And so I pray you'd you listen to what the Word of God has to say, reflect on this biblical value of community, and ask ourselves why we don't prioritize or how can we, how can we grow in community. Starting in verse 11, we see the first point that I mentioned. It says, and he, that he is God, 
He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or shepherd teachers, however you, uh, there's different ways of translating that in the Greek. Um, but God gave different people to the church to fulfill different roles and functions within the church. And this is actually fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Jeremiah 3.15, God talks about he would give his people shepherds after his own heart. And one of the, the core things that he said that these teachers would do is that he would feed the sheep with knowledge and understanding. He would give them knowledge and understanding. And if I was forced to take these people, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, and lump them into a category and say that that's what these people are, I would call them good newsers, basically. These are the people that are giving good news to the church. The, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, even the Old Testament prophets. Most of the time, they were more forth-telling than they were foretelling. That is, they were more pointing back to what God had already done and looking back at what God had already promised to do in the future than it was kind of predicting what would come in the future. Most of the time, it was reflecting back on God and telling God's people, look, look what God has done in the past. Remain faithful to him. He has clearly demonstrated his faithfulness to us. So these teachers are to, these, these leaders that God has given the church are meant to give people the gospel, what God has done in human history. And it says in verse 12, to equip. And in the context of the Greco-Roman world, and even today, when I think equipment, I've been in the military the last 13 years. When you go to get equipment in the military for battle, you're getting your weapon, your armor, whatever supplies you need. You don't go to your first leader, your sergeant. You don't even go to your commander. You don't go to the first sergeant. You go to the supply sergeant. And that person, for those of you that haven't been in the military, it's a very servant role. They, they document everything that's on your record. They get you what you need. They sit there and do maintenance on your equipment to make sure it's functioning properly so that you can go and do your job. It's a very servant role. And here in verse 12, God says he gave these people to equip the saints, the holy ones, the people of God. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. That may sound weird, but you are holy. God says you are holy. And we, we equip, we serve for the work of ministry so that everybody in the church can be doing the work of ministry. And that word in the Greek uh, for ministry is diakonias. And that's where we get our English word deacon. We have elders in the church. We have deacon. That word deacon or diakonias is like service. It's servanthood. So when it says the work of ministry, it's talking about the work of service to one another for the building up of the body of Christ. These people that God has given the church are, are giving to the saints who then give to others for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, instead of a hierarchy where power is pushed down from top to bottom, God calls us to incorporate the same servant leadership which Christ demonstrated for us when he took our responsibility on the cross, when he perfectly served God and us by dying a death that we deserve and we emulate that service in the way we work together as a community in the local church. Instead of orders pushed down the chain of command, love and service is pushed throughout the church, service at every level, so that we can then go and serve the world. That Genesis 22:18 promise that God gave to Abraham that his offspring would bless the nations, that it would bless everybody, we do that. So it's literally service being pushed out at every single level. That's where the term servant leadership comes from is Jesus. I mean, think about this. I, 
when we were singing, we took a break and we read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If you look back at that, it said that Jesus emptied himself. I've, I've talked about this before, like in some way he emptied himself. He like, he, he, he didn't grasp onto his divinity with God in some way, theologically speaking, he emptied a part of himself. And then he took on the form of, of, of a human. And it says he took on the form of something specifically. And now think about this. This is a dangerous thought experiment, but we'll just do this for a second. You're God, right? Yeah, I know. You're going to send you're going to send Jesus to live and fulfill our purpose as humans. Adam failed. The first man, Adam, failed in his purpose. Now you're going to send Jesus to show people what it truly meant to be a human. And so you send Jesus in the form of what? What would you send him in the form of? You know, a, a holy, a majestic, a powerful an incredible, this awe-inspiring, maybe military leader, you know, this very charismatic teacher and preacher, maybe. No, that's not what Philippians says. It says he took on the form of a servant. This is what it meant to be human. This is what it meant for us to be human. Service, servitude. Jesus doesn't take on the form of some powerful person, some powerful community leader, some powerful military leader, some powerful conqueror. He takes on the form of a servant, serves people. We even look to examples of this in the gospel where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet and serving and loving them. This is so radically different. God gives the saints gifts even. We, we looked at this not too long ago in 1 Corinthians. God gives his people gifts. He gives them different gifts. And not so they could stand out and be so cool and like boast and like, oh, look at my ability to do this thing or that thing. But 1 Peter 4.10, Peter commands us, he says, use them to serve one another. Use them to love one another as Jesus did for us. And we emulate him in that service. I mean, if God has blessed you in any way, and if you're a Christian, God has. He's given some kind of gift. And it's not your job to kind of like figure it out or anything. I see, you know, there's these websites that tell you fill out this and you'll find out what your gifting is. Um, and, and I would say you don't need to do that. You just need to start. Just step into it. Just start serving, uh, serving the church, serving one another. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that, especially in the last year or two. And don't, don't just waste your gifts pursuing earthly things that unlike the kingdom of God will pass away tomorrow. His kingdom is forever. Why not serve using your gifts in that capacity. Some of us only use our gifts to serve our employers who in the event of our death would have a job out out for our replacement before it's got cold, unfortunately. And I'm not saying it's not bad to have a job. You know, you, you should have a job. There's a lot, you know, Paul even says we need to work and provide. However, if that's all you're doing is just working for your house, your car, you know, whatever earthly things you want to hold on to, you are not fulfilling your purpose as God had created you, you to be. As a matter of fact, it is impossible, it is impossible to fulfill your call in this world. Your reason for being here is impossible outside of community. If it was to serve, if we're looking to Jesus as an example of what it means to be a human, you can't fulfill your purpose. No matter what you think you're doing, whatever, no matter whatever dreams you have, whatever glory you're striving for, it's meaningless, meaningless if it's self-serving. If it's only serving you, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your life, and you've squandered what God has given you to fulfill your purpose and your calling. And some of the senses, 
when I was a military recruiter, most of the reason people wanted to join the military is because they wanted to help people. They wanted to get in medical field or counseling or police or some kind of law enforcement because they wanted to help people. God's put this in us. But sometimes we reject it and serve our own needs instead of the needs of others. He says it's for the building up of the body of Christ in verse 12. Paul uses this language many, many times, and it's amazing. It's theologically rich. Just this one word, the body of Christ, a way to uh, define the church and what it is, the body. It's theologically rich, it's timeless in its application. Paul uses it again and again in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Hebrews 13, Colossians 1 and 3, and almost every single chapter of the book we're in right now, Ephesians. He uses this example of the body of Christ. If you've, um, I used to do track in high school, I did like all four years, and I didn't do this event, but I, it's like the most popular event. Everybody shows up on the sidelines to cheer this one event. Anybody know what it is? I don't, maybe it was different for you guys. In high school, everybody was there cheering on the 100 meter dash. Is that true for some of you? I don't know if you guys were in track. If it's, I don't know. My events, nobody came to. I did the jumping events, and nobody seemed to care about high jump or pole vault or long jump, especially triple jump. It was just weird, and it's hard to do. Um, but the 100-meter dash, that was super popular. I would go and watch the 100-meter dash. At the Olympic level, if you watch those sprinters, it's very interesting. You can do this in slow motion, but I don't even think you have to. If you watch those sprinters, they are using every single muscle at their disposal to pull ahead. I'm talking, their heads are literally, it's funny, because their heads are bobbing. They're throwing their neck and their head forward, like every part of the body, they're reaching forward for the next step. Their toes inside their shoes are grabbing and ripping the earth out from underneath them to propel themselves forward. They're using every ounce of their strength and every muscle fiber in their body because the margin of victory is so small. I mean, literally, it's a photo finish almost every single time. The glory that they race for requires every single part of their body striving and reaching for that finish line. The speeds they reach, it would not be possible without that, without all those different components of their body working together and striving for that. When you, as a Christian, pull yourself out of community, you do harm to the body. You harm your brother. You harm your sister in Christ. You harm them in the race that Paul calls the Christian life. Paul describes a Christian life as a race in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and how fitting for, you know, for the analogy I gave. When you pull yourself out of that, you do harm. Think about if a runner, if, if one of those 100-meter dash sprinters was to lose so much as a finger, it, let alone a foot or something like that, it'd still be possible to finish the race. They're probably not going you know, to win or come in first place. It's going to be with much difficulty that they cross the finish line. And they're not going to compete at the level with which they could have. And, and maybe that doesn't bother you. Maybe, like I said, the American sense of individualism is so strong in you, you're like, ah, fooey. I don't care if I hurt the body. Whatever. Fooey, that's a weird word. Some people giggle at that. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> but maybe it doesn't bother you. Maybe the fact that you're hurting the body of Christ is like, whatever. Think about this for a second. If you're individualist in your mindset, which I am too, I mean, I've born and raised in America. I get it. If you were to abruptly remove an arm for the body, think about what would happen to that arm. And by the way, that's not a threat if you're like going to leave the church or anything. I just want to, this is just an, an analogy. So I'm not going to rip your arm off or anything. Actually, it'd probably be Rick. Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. If anybody was going to do it, it'd be him. But think about the arm. Does anybody have a clue what would happen to that arm? 
And this is why the analogy that Paul gives is so powerful. Sure, the body could survive with proper care. It would continue on. But without the heart, that arm would slowly lose its warmth and grow cold. It, it loses the life that it, it was receiving from the body. Calcium would begin to build up in the muscle and it would become stiff and hard, no longer able to bend, flex, twist, or throw. All of its actions gone from a lack of processing signals from the brain. It would lose all its function for its design purpose and die, becoming nothing more than a festering breeding ground for all kinds of ugly things. Paul was no fool in using this analogy. You do great harm to the church and yourself when you decide to pull out of Christian community. Has anybody ever seen Rise of the Planet of the Apes? It wouldn't be a Ronnie Sermon without a movie reference. I've actually never seen it. Has anybody ever seen it? E either way, there, there's a clip from that movie that has turned into a very popular internet meme. Maybe some people know it where Caesar's holding up the sticks. Anybody see, okay, so a couple people have seen it. Anyways, he, he, he uses... This, this meme is meant to kind of convey this idea of working together as a team. And I've seen it kind of using like me trying to explain to my Call of Duty uh, buddies like how we win. Because there's a scene where the, the main chimpanzee, Caesar, holds up a stick and he cracks and he says, you know, apes alone, weak. But then he keeps cracking and now it's like a bunch of sticks and he says, apes together strong. And it's turned into like this internet meme. It's kind of funny. But, you know, a simple idea, a simple idea of working together and the strength when people come together is, is communicated and people love it and latch onto it. Just like the Olympic sprinter who's, who's striving forward, there's not one muscle out there winning the day. It's not just one muscle. It's, it's tens of thousands of explosive muscle movements from tens of thousands of muscle fibers working inside the body to accomplish this and propel the body forward. And all this stuff is so that this would happen. Look at verse 13. All of this working together, all of this building one another up, says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. This section in Ephesians is actually, it's a section on unity and coming together as the body of Christ. And what greater time to talk about unity than the last year, when, uh, as Wally had mentioned, if you guys go back and watch the family video, video just all the division from, from many things. Last year was particularly difficult for a lot of churches and a lot of division within the body. And here Paul is calling us to the unity of the faith. And I want to be clear, though, this is not just unity for the sake of unity. It's not just let's agree to disagree, go along to get along kind of thing. There are many things that we as Christians, by matter of conviction, must divorce ourselves from. There is, there just is. And it's not unity just for the sake of unity. In, in verse 13, Paul's very specific. He says the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. This unity is specific. It's rooted in the gospel and guarded by the gospel. Uniting around the gospel protects the body of Christ. From, from what? Look at verse 14. So that we no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, deceitfulness, these schemes. It's funny, uh, back in my old job, I had a soldier who, he, he would always come up to me. I was kind of a mentor for this, for this young guy, and he would ask me different questions and stuff. And one time... He called me. He's like, hey, I, um, I got like an economic opportunity or like a, a job opportunity kind of, and I wanted to get your take on it. And so he's sitting here describing this. He's like, yeah, I was working out at the gym and some guy came and talked to me. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. And uh, he's describing it to me. And I'm like, in the back of my head as he's talking, I'm like, this is 100% a pyramid scheme. This, this is a pyramid scheme. And I let him finish. He's talking and I'm like, 
I'm like, uh, we'll just call him Joe for the for for now. But I was like, uh, Joe, this is a pyramid scheme. I'm 100% sure. And he's like, what is that? You know, I had to walk him through and explain to him what it is. Why is it that maybe some of you have experienced this as well? Why do we get so many calls from the IRS or Dell Support Service? Has anybody gotten these calls? Yeah, yeah. Um, why, why are people doing this? It works. They wouldn't do it if it didn't work. Why would they waste their time? They're just trying to rip people off or kind of waste your time with a five-minute phone call saying that you owe $3,000 to the IRS? No, they do it because it works. It tricks people. They're deceived by this. Rick mentioned the prosperity gospel last week. Why do so many people believe that? It's totally contrary to scripture. But why do so many people believe it? It works. And this is something I want to mention because it's timely because we're about to come into Easter. God has given leaders in the church, he's given us the gospel as, you know, something we celebrate, we rejoice, we reflect on, it's our eternal hope, but also to safeguard us from false doctrine. Um, As we come into Easter, this is something that almost happens every single year. Coming into the months of Easter or Christmas, major news media outlets will put out some kind of article, maybe even a video attacking, mostly it's two things, either the resurrection of Jesus Christ or it's the veracity of the scripture. That is, like, how do we know that our Bible actually says what it does say and that we haven't been duped into believing something different than what the original authors intended? It happens almost every year without fail as it comes upon uh, Easter and Christmas time. As a matter of fact, in 2014, there was an article from Kurt Ischenwald from uh, Newsweek. He had an article put out called The Bible, So Misunderstood It's a Sin. If you want that reference and want to go read it for yourself, let me know. It's, it's a good hour read, though. Just warning. Um, and, and the first opening paragraph is just this diatribe against Christians. He clearly doesn't like them. And by the way, this was not an opinion piece. This was presented as news. And then he proceeded to give a bunch of false information about how the Bible came together, the original manuscripts, how we collected these over time, the lack of confidence we should have in the Bible, and all these different things. Thank God for men like, because this article went, it went a little bit viral, thank God for men like Michael Kruger, who teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary, who took up the gauntlet and challenged him. And there are many other men who did as well, but Michael Kruger specifically, who works in the area of textual criticism, took up the gauntlet and wrote an article called A Christmas Present from the Mainstream Media. Newsweek takes a desperate swipe at the integrity of the Bible. And he points out fact after fact after fact that was wrong, that was misleading. His numbers were off. It was just an awfully done article, but it didn't matter. Anything that they could bring to attack our our faith in the resurrection, the faith in our Bible, Luckily, we have men like Michael Kruger, who, you know, you can watch his debates with Bart Ehrman, who is a, who's a constant critic of the Bible. You got James White, who's debated over 150 times, Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, like all different kinds of people, textual criticism. The guy knows the Greek backward and forward. Like God has given us good teachers, like good teachers who can faithfully defend the faith uh, and, and take up some of these challenges. And God has given them for this to protect us from craftiness from from these schemes that people come up this false information and it really is if you read the article i'm telling you go read it for yourself you'll see even the response this was not a work of scholarship so this stuff works because people believe it they buy into it even if you don't want to read the article go go down to the bottom and read the comments it will shock you people were ready to eat this up without actually because there's no sources in the article no sources he didn't source anything but it was presented as news but people accepted it just like yeah this is the truth we'll take it People are very easily tricked, myself included. I almost cashed a Western Union check from someone. It was really close. I thought it was a cool job opportunity. (laughs) Uh, 
And the thing is, we need to be people of the truth. We need to defend the truth. We need to speak the truth. But Paul says in verse 15, we need to speak the truth in love. We do need to speak the truth in love. And this is, this is vital. And, and we'll kind of close with these last couple thoughts. In the church and even speaking to the world outside, we need to be careful. Because you can beat people over the head with the truth. You can run them over the, with the truth. You can put it in reverse and back them over with the truth and just bludgeon them to death with it. You really can. But Paul says to speak the truth in love. Tell someone that they're wrong, and it's not that big of a deal sometimes. You tell me two plus two doesn't equal five, and I'm like, oh, what an idiot. You're right. Let me fix that. I'll never say that again. It's four. You're right. However, telling someone that they're sinning is, is in a whole different level. Not only are they wrong, they're offending God, and we like our sin. We love our sin. That's why we do it. We keep doing our sin because we love our sin. Now you're saying, I, I can't do this anymore. I shouldn't be doing it, or that God is mad about it? Yes. You know, if, if you're just going with truth and no love, no love for that person, that's the whole reason we speak truth is because we want to love people. We don't want them to be deceived. We want them to come to the truth. And so we have to do it in love. There, there's a famous atheist, Penn uh, Gillette. I don't know if anybody does it. He does the magic tricks in Vegas. Um, he, had, he had a video. It wasn't about atheism, but it's about the context of our language and love. And it's kind of funny because he's, he's petting this dog. It's, it's like a chihuahua, like really gently. I don't know if you guys have seen this video, but he's like really gently, softly talking to me. He's like, oh, you know, I'd love nothing more than to put you behind my car and back over you and just, you know, kill you right there on the spot. You know, you know awful things. I mean, it gets much worse. Uh, and, but then, he, you know, he turns to the camera. He's like, well, maybe, you know, it's the context sometimes of what we say that gives our words meaning. And then he looks over at the dog and he goes, I love you, dog. <laughs> and the dog like recoils in horror because he's, he's yelling at him. Yeah, what he said was, you know, much better than what he was saying, but it terrified the dog because he was saying it in a very aggressive and angry manner. And in the same way, it, you know, it comes down to even the tone of our language. And if you feel you can't enter into those conversations without grace and love bringing truth, I've told people, like, pray for that person. Pray for that person that you want to bring that truth. Ask God to change your heart about it. If that's your attitude in coming to it, like you just want to be right, you just want to win an argument, like ask God to change that in you. Ask God to give you a heart for that person that you would love them, that you would share the truth with them in a way that would make them feel built up, make them feel encouraged. All of these things, everything we've, we've talked about today, the gifts that God has given, uh, the fulfillment of our purpose, coming into community, serving one another, and strengthening up the body of Christ. Uh, this is all to help us grow into the only man who could have ever perfectly fulfilled our human purpose. When, when Jesus came, he took on the form of a servant. He, he, he perfectly obeyed God, was in perfect service to God. He perfectly served God in every way that God had called him to, and then even perfectly served us. When he went to the cross, which was a brutal and awful way of dying, he really entered into one of the worst moments of human history to be executed in an act of service and love for all of us so that God now sees us as that perfect servant having perfectly fulfilled our servant in all the ways that we have failed and we have failed in serving one another. In Gospel Community Church all through our life, many of us have failed in loving our community. Even as Christians, we failed to love the brotherhood. We failed to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In all the ways that we have, Jesus perfectly took up the gauntlet of that and served us faithfully, served his disciples faithfully, served the church globally faithfully. And God now sees us as that perfect servant. And we work and we serve, emulating Christ, making him the hero, pointing to him through our acts of service and love for one another. 
when you have the entire body of believers held together, Paul in verse 16, he talks about every joint, which is equipped. You know, it's got, it's got everything it's need. It's working together. It's functioning to accomplish its mission that God has given it. It makes the body strong that it can grow and build itself up in love. Don't forsake the gift of community that God has given you. And don't forsake your call to fulfill your purpose as a servant. And don't weaken the strength of the church by living out there as a lone wolf Christian. There really is no such thing. Amen? Let's pray. God, we come and confess that this is an area of weakness for us. How we here think that being a good neighbor is keeping your head down when you walk into the house and saying a few polite words to your neighbor as you go inside. We don't value community. We don't like community. We like our own private spaces and our, our own way of doing things. We don't want to invite people into our lives and we don't want to be in others, God. I pray that you would uh, fix some things of that that are broken in us, that you would help us strive and long for community, that we, we would begin to fulfill our purpose, the reason in which you sent us here to serve and love one another. I pray that you would Help us live into it, that you gave us, Jesus, as that example of a servant. Help us live into that, God. Help us serve and love one another and serve you by serving one another. You've told us that we demonstrate our love for you in loving one another, God. We pray that you would help us, God. Please help us. We need help. Amen.